Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We're doing a very important piece today on nuclear power, nuclear energy, nuclear problems, and nuclear science that you need to know to discern facts from fiction. We have Ace Hoffman here today. He is the author of The Code Killers. It's all about DNA and EPA tritium. He is a writer and a researcher that has done so much for people becoming aware of nuclear science and nuclear power and why it is one of the top priorities in our world. Some say that he is one of the key people responsible for the shutdown of San Onofre nuclear reactor. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a great pleasure and an honor to welcome Ace Hoffman to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. Uh, most of those are actually reports, which actually tend to add up to being as long as a book. But uh, the, the book is The Code Killers. That's it. Let's talk about, first of all, why you wrote The Code Killers and what The Code Killers is really about and why the public should buy that book. I should tell them they don't need to buy it. It's available free at my website, but if they want a printed copy, I'd love to uh, supply them with one for a small fee. Uh, the the reason that you should buy it is because what happens to our DNA is what defines us. It is our humanity. It is our individualism. It's both. It's every. It's our evolution. It's a, if you prefer, it's our gift from God. The DNA is everything in our life. And what is destroying it is nuclear power. That's why I called the book The Code Killers. I spent, oh, 35 years or so learning about nuclear power before I dared to write that book. And it's meant as a guide. I actually originally wrote it as a guide for myself, so that when I went into a nuclear hearing, of which I've gone to, I don't know, a hundred of them, uh, I wanted to have a source of information where I could quickly flip to what I needed to make sure I'm not getting snowed or I'm not forgetting an important part because it's all so complicated. Um, and I found other people have found it useful too. I've gotten a lot of compliments for it and a lot of downloads. I've given away thousands of copies. <laughs> Sold a few. The subtitle of The Code Killers is Why DNA and Ionizing Radiation Are a Dangerous Mix. Why don't we just start by talking about that? Okay, well, DNA is a 20 billion atom long sequence of codes. That's why it's called the code killers. The DNA is the code for our genetic existence. And uh, ionizing radiation, the definition of ionizing radiation is basically that it can destroy molecules and knock electrons off of atoms, ionizing them and uh, basically disrupt on on a subatomic and atomic scale anything. And since our bodies have such an enormous amount of DNA, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 trillion uh, uh, cells in our bodies, and each cell, almost all of them, 99% or so of them, 98% have DNA in them. So there's an awful lot of DNA that can be disrupted by radiation. 
And the pro-nukers have this theory that a little radiation is good for you, it stimulates the immune system, blah, 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 blah. None of that has ever been proven true, but the cancer rates have gone up enormously, uh, partly because we live longer, but also because there's a lot of cancer-causing poisons in the, in the environment. So DNA is, the, uh, is what we need to protect, and radiation is one of the main things that destroys it. Is there a test that the public could take looking at a benchmark of where their DNA is and identify if it's been hurt or damaged or what's going on with the DNA? That's a very interesting question. Uh, basically, probably not because it takes just one cell differentiating its DNA from its normal behavior. And for that cell to then replicate over and over again, uh, faster than it's supposed to, and next thing you know, you have a growth inside you. And if it's in an inoperable place, that could be a fatal cancer. So it doesn't take any of the trillions of cells in your body. Only one of them needs to change for it to start to be a cancer. So there's not going to be a test to examine every cell's DNA for and anyway, a test like that would probably be destructive. Uh, so there's no really way. There, you can tell that the DNA is getting damaged, uh, but it's a very, it's still not something that's routinely done or anything like that. Uh, but you can look at a couple of cells or a few, you know, of somebody's DNA and see how it looks. But I don't think there's a, a really good way to tell how uh, the cells were damaged or how damaged they are. I'm looking at your page in your book called Poison Fire USA, Major USA Nuclear Incidents, Events, and Structures. You start with 1945, 1955, 1965, 1975, 85, 95, and 2005, and you show maps. I think this is really helpful. Do you know where we're at, and do you plan on doing an update into 2014? That page is from an animation that actually showed the events in time and location. I think I had 3,500 different events, including over 1,000 bomb tests positioned on those maps. And then I took every 10 years and, and laid it down. So uh, the program is capable of being upgraded. It's a big chore to put everything that's happened in the last 10 years or 11 years now since I did that program. But it does show the the, the progression has changed. Um, there are less nuclear power plants now than there used to be because they're not building very many. I think two are sort of in being built, delays and over expenses, and they may never get completed. But last year, for example, four, including the two units at San Onofre, closed. So we had a net loss of four uh, nuclear power plants in 2013. And this year, I believe Oyster Creek is supposed to close, and maybe Vermont Yankee or one of them. Oyster Creek announced it was going to close last year, too, I think. So the industry is a dying industry. They talk about a renaissance, but uh, it's not actually happening. You mean in the United States? What about, like, my understanding is that France is heavily nuclearized and other countries are. I know Germany is not, right? Germany shut down a lot of their nuclear? I think they shut down eight of them and, uh, after Fukushima and because of Fukushima, and they plan to phase out the rest over the next 10 or 15 years. And it shouldn't be much of a problem for them. They're going 
uh, you know, wholeheartedly into solar and, you know, with very little uh, fossil fuel use in, increase. And uh, we're talking about Germany. France, on the other hand, although it's very nuclearized and is trying to sell its nuclear technology abroad, such as to Finland, um, they don't, and, and also in China and so forth, uh, I don't see them having a lot of growth in nuclear power plants themselves. So, again, that industry, their, their reactors are going to start aging, and uh, there's a pretty strong movement in France to shut them down. Uh, strong enough? Who knows? India is yet another story. They're pretty uh, gung-ho on nuclear power, although they have an even stronger anti-nuclear movement which involves people fasting and thousands of protests, thousands of people protesting. And uh, uh, China is perhaps the worst pro-nuclear country of all, and that seems to be running on bribery and so forth to get you know, permission to build a plant, which the citizens don't, you know, in China are just as much against these things as anywhere else. What is the distinction between natural radiation and manufactured radiation? Well, there's no distinction, really. It depends on the isotopes. If a, uh, if a manufactured radioactive isotope is the same isotope as a natural one, then they're going to have the same effect. Tritium, for example, is the exact same isotope uh, that is created naturally in very minute quantities uh, by cosmic rays from the sun or from outer space. But tritium created by uh, nuclear power plants is found in local groundwater in excessively high, you know, high quantities. So that's the main difference is where it's going to be found. Uh, but there's also a lot of radioactive uh, effluent from nuclear power plants that are just not normally found in nature at all. Such as? Strontium-90 and cesium uh, 137 and 134 and iodine, the radioactive isotopes of iodine. And so those things, like the iodine, for example, if your body sees iodine, it says, hey, you know, that's a good thing. I'll take it. And it will absorb as much as 30 times what it, what it needs to, to live if it just has it available. Iodine gets absorbed by the thyroid. So in a nuclear accident, a lot of radioactive iodine is released. The body says, oh, well, iodine, I'll take it. And uh, next thing you know, you've got radioactive iodine permanently in, in your thyroid, which uh, can you know, cause thyroid cancer later, which is not necessarily a fatal cancer, but no cancer is fun. Talk a little bit about the natural cumulative effect of radiation. I don't think most of us get it. Well, it's all theoretical because the cumulative effect is a series of insults to your DNA and uh, whether or not one of them causes cancer or it could be some other problem. Even uh, uh, autism has been blamed on radiation. I don't know, you know which problems. Lower uh, grade scores in school, uh, heart, heart disease. Now, it's not the only cause of any of these things, but sometimes it can act synergistically with other chemical insults to the body to enhance their effect. The EPA, after Fukushima, raised the levels of acceptability for radiation. 
How did you feel about that? What does that mean? What do you make of that act? Uh, do do I call it criminal? Is that what you're asking? I'm asking you how you really feel about the fact that they raised the limits after Fukushima. I think it reflects a lack of edu- education on their part, that they're not considering all the different effects that are in- inevitably going to happen. The human body is an incredibly or- ornate and microstructured organism. If radiation damages, uh, you know, an alpha particle, I read in one of the science books that I own, is actually enough energy to move a pebble on the beach, to visibly move it if it hits it right. That's a lot of energy. And that's going to do some damage to your body. So it may be a nerve ending that is inconsequential in the middle of your body somewhere. The other nerves around it will take over. But then again, it might be part of the heart structure that starts a beat uh, that gets damaged. And suddenly your heart is either erratic or stops. And it might damage a, a fetus, which is only a matter of, you know, at, at one point it's, it's one cell, and then two and four and eight and so forth. And you can completely destroy these things with one radiation uh, emission. So without considering what is the benefit of allowing radiation in our environment, and there can be no benefit from trying to produce electricity through nuclear power because there's alternatives. But without asking the question of what is the benefit, it's ludicrous to allow any additional radiation. Man-made radiation is, is useless. Talk a little bit about the distinction between medical x-rays and a CT scan versus other types of radioactivity so people have a context, if you wouldn't mind. If you need those things, like a medical x-ray or a CT, chances are it's well within your uh, odds that you should get them. In other words, if you have a a broken bone, uh, the the amount of radiation in an x-ray is fairly small. And if a bone isn't set right, not only will you not be able to walk, but it can cause much worse problems later on. It can have an enormous effect on your quality of life. Um, if it's a skull fracture, of course you need to get that x-ray. My question is, what is the distinction between like getting a medical x-ray and getting a CT scan? Like you have a CT scan at what, 500 billion something as compared to a medical x-ray of 1 billion. It's a billion what? Oh, that's uh, uh, early on in the book. And yes. Emission levels, is, is, I believe that's the actual number of, of uh, emissions that are involved in those particular actions, although I don't actually have the book in front of me. No worries. Right now. But in terms of of how that relates to low-level radiation from Fukushima that we're all breathing, the levels from Fukushima are way, way below the, you know, one medical X-ray is probably, you know, how many days or months or even years worth of Fukushima radiation for the average person in America. I, I don't know but it's pretty low. The, the uh, Fukushima radiation has been spread very thin by the time it gets to us. Here's what I want to say. I'm not sure if you've heard this since Fukushima, but there's been a lot of either truth and or propaganda surrounding 
the impacts to the United States. I had a guy named Kesha. Actually, he lives in Belgium, but he's an Iranian nuclear scientist. He says you're finished in the United States, that it's over here, declared us over, that it's impossible. Life will never be the same. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of articles. There's people taking Geiger counters, measuring different areas all across the country. And I wanted to ask you, what is your take on this? And have you measured it? Yes, I have measured it. I have not noticed a significant increase over when I started measuring it, but that was... 60 days after Fukushima. I haven't noticed a significant decrease either. The variance on a day-to-day basis is enormous without any particular reason. Uh, But again, since these are such small quantities, it's very hard to say what the amount of damage is going to be to, say, people on the West Coast of the United States or or anywhere in the United States. After all, California is the breadbasket to a large extent, of the rest of the country. We, uh, you know, at least a fruit basket and a dairy basket and, you know, other states have, you know, contributions as well. But California seems to supply everything across the country and even around the world. Um, So you're taking what is a very small quantity and then distributing it among hundreds of millions of people. That's a lot of people. And so they're, if they're getting a very low dose, you're not going to be, there's just no way to say, okay, you got breast cancer because you were breathing Fukushima's air. But it could be true with 100 million or 200, 300 million people in America alone breathing Fukushima's air. If one in a million were to die, that would be 300 people. 300 people dropping dead for no good reason it should alarm somebody. But it's like, well, there's no way. Who cares? You know, people act like that's not important. One, what if it's more than one in a million? What, is one in 10, 000, what if it's one in 10,000? Now you're talking 30,000, right? 30,000 people dying. And would we be able to know for sure that it was Fukushima? Does anyone, is anyone studying carefully enough to know if an extra 30,000 people are dying? Well, maybe that many we would notice, but it's really hard to do those studies. Uh, Maybe it's somewhere in between, one in 100,000. So that means 3,000 people die in in a year, in a decade. How long does it take? Uh, Who's willing to wait? Who's going to do the studies? So it's the... The bottom line is somewhere between we're all going to die and it's not going to have any effect or the pro-nuclear side, which is, they say, it's a little sunshine vitamin, it's good for you, we'll all be healthier because of Fukushima. Uh, that seems totally crazy to me, but where exactly the line is, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. And there's not any known way to study it, and I don't. the new studies that the National Academy of Science is doing is not going to get us all that much closer to finding out how many people might have died in America from Fukushima or might die over the next 20 years or 50 years in America, let alone in Fukushima, where because of the evacuations. and Talk about what happened with your work on and about San Onofre, the nuclear plant that was shut down and your work with other people in California to make that happen. Give the audience a feel for how serious the situation has been. 
okay, well, we, we started, my wife and I, 20 years ago, approximately, when we moved to the, or 25 years ago, when we moved to Southern California, I started by writing a letter or two to the local paper. And within a couple of years, I went to a meeting about, you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has a meeting every year about the quality of work being done at San Onofre or at every nuclear power plant. And at those meetings, at the, the, uh, there was usually only one other activist named Lynn Hicks. So Lynn, and she had been fighting San Onofre since before it was built. She has a home not very far from it. So Lynn and Sharon and I would go to the meetings and uh, discuss it. And, and we wouldn't make much progress and we wouldn't have many other people there. Then after 9-11, there was a, a huge uh, surge of interest at the meeting. There were, oh, scores of reporters, 30 reporters, maybe more, and 100 uh, people that were interested. And an interesting thing happened. I thought it was interesting in retrospect. The, uh, it was always difficult to actually talk to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission people. But at that meeting, they surrounded me. There were like six of them all wanting to talk to me about this, that, and the other thing. I figured out later that they were trying to keep me away from talking to the press, and it was very successful. So I kind of stopped talking to them. Uh, we're still cordial, but I keep my distance. Uh, and I go to their meetings, and if they want to say it officially and on the record, although there's not much of a record kept at many of the meetings, then that's fine with me, but I don't bother with those private conversations afterwards where they promise to get back to me and promise to get me the information and so forth, and they never do. you got to submit it in writing. So that went on after 9-11 now, that's you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, uh, we... Uh, there was more interest, but still not that much. And then shortly before Fukushima, there started to be a little more interest. And uh, after Fukushima, what we already had a small group of activists. And so we were pretty, pretty much already mobilized with maybe seven or a dozen people. And then it just blossomed. People would come in and they wouldn't leave. And uh, so we formed a coalition and uh, every time they would get a new person, I'd immediately give them a copy of my book, of course. And we decided that the thing to do was to go to city councils and express our dissatisfaction with the fact that this plant is still open, despite the dangers that Fukushima illustrated, of which there were many. Uh, even though San Onofre is not the same type of plant, it's a, a pressurized water reactor, whereas the Fukushima ones were boiling water reactors. But... That doesn't necessarily make it better. In some ways, that makes it worse and more likely to have a catastrophic accident. Why? Well, because you have a third loop of super-pressurized, superheated water that's uh, flowing at hundreds of thousands of gallons a minute through, this, uh, through, through these steam generators, which are, in fact, what broke at San Onofre. So we had a strong coalition of, of people, and we were, we were training ourselves. Uh, we would not prepare uh, written notes. Most of us, more than 90% of us, would go to speak at common council meetings in, in the local area and at Nuclear Regulatory Commission meetings and see, uh, California Public Utilities meetings uh, and California Energy uh, Co Commission meetings and Water Board meetings, but we'd speak without notes. 
And that way, one person could carry on the story if another person wasn't able to finish, and they could say things that are pertinent to what other people had said at the meeting and so forth. It's, a, it's much better than having people come in and just read from a script, especially if they don't go over the scripts with each other and make sure they're not repeating. But, you know, we have just an incredible group of activists. And then after that, San Onofre sprung a leak. And so we were already well mobilized, thanks to Fukushima, and thanks for the, to the just the way that we you know put things together and had a, a, a tight group. And so when that happened, uh, uh, Friends of the Earth came in and they brought in some experts who had actually designed uh, steam generators, the part that failed at San Onofre, and they were able to explain to us why restarting that. The, the Unit 2 reactor after Unit 3 had failed was a very risky uh, venture. And I think that's the basic thing that helped us to get the plant closed is that we had the science on our side and everybody knew it. And the uh, whistleblowers would talk to people like me. I'd write about it for the newsletter, for the, uh, for the activists. The activists would go and complain, and uh, the NRC would basically be caught between a rock and a hard place, because if they had permitted San Onofre to restart, and uh, it did indeed spring a leak, there's a good chance there'd be jail time for that kind of negligence. We, I think we convinced them of that, and so the Nuclear Regulatory Commission kept going back to San Onofre, to the, the Southern California Edison, the owners and operators, uh, majority owners, uh, and saying, well, you need to give us a better explanation for why this is going to work this way and why did this happen <laughs> that way. And I think it was like December 24th, 2012, 2013, when, 2012, when San Onofre wrote, uh, got a letter from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with something like 67 very technical points that they were required to answer. That was, the, that was NRC's Christmas present to San Onofre. And uh, a few months later, San Onofre finally gave up. And I think what took them so long is they're absolutely convinced that the ratepayers are going to pay for all the expense of waiting. If they had decided within you know, a few weeks of the original uh, failure that there was no way these things could be restarted, it would have saved billions of dollars of ratepayer money. And it turns out the CPUC did indeed charge the ratepayers with nearly all of that expense. That is just horrifying. That is just criminal. Billions of dollars. And, and, and the, the, the problem was clearly that Southern California Edison did not check their, uh, their designs when they upgraded the steam generators. They didn't check their designs properly. Uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, who built the steam generators, didn't check those same designs properly. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission didn't go over the plans, and the public wasn't shown any of the plans for how the steam generators were going to work. So we couldn't have checked it anyway, although it would have been a rather difficult technical task without having hired those experts that got hired in the end anyway, like Arnie Gunderson, John Large. These are experts that were hired for the, uh, for the investigation by Friends of the Earth to uh, point out what was wrong with the, with, with the uh, steam generators, to, to point out the things the NRC should have known anyway, and the whole industry should have known it. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Declaration of a National and International Water Crisis is a declaration about water 
that comes directly from snowmelt and rainfall. It has nothing to do with the water that exists below your feet, underground, into faulted structures all over the world. I want you to know that there is an unlimited supply of available fresh water everywhere on Earth, including the deserts. For over 100 years, teams of people have been locating water for private people. And the reason you haven't heard of it is that it is not part of the mainstream orthodoxy of geology that's taught at universities. When you think about people and animals in developing nations having to walk miles to bring back a bucket of water, I want you to know that that is an unacceptable atrocity. Nobody should have to go through that. I've made a commitment to make water available to sophisticated investors and to people in need across the world and to make commercial applications available for water in the United States and abroad. There's only a water crisis as it relates to snowmelt and rainfall, not having to do with the third source of water, which is below our feet. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a sophisticated investor or a farmer that would be interested in having your own water supply that is independent of the aquifers, feel free to call. It's rainmaking time. The good news is that there's plenty of water everywhere for anybody and any animal on planet Earth that needs it. Thank you very much. And back to the show. I was told by a dear friend of mine who lived in Washington state that they have a leaking nuclear reactor that just is continued to leak and leak and leak. Are you familiar with this? All reactors leak, so that's probably true. I guess I'm going to ask a crazy question. Why is it that they are allowed to be if they don't have the proper protections in the event of a leak? Well, they do everything on the basis of uh, probabilistic risk assessments. So if they think that something is, uh, is leaking, then they have to simply dilute the material to where the chance of any one particular person getting a, uh, a severe dose is minimized. There was a guy working for the company that owns the reactors in Washington State who was fired when he tried to talk about getting it corrected. Remember that guy? That's, yeah, that's what happens in the nuclear industry. You're expected to bathe in radioactive crud uh, if they want you to, to uh, protect your job and to prove that you're one of them and you're not afraid of the stuff. I'm serious. They have in, uh, there's a type of reactor called an ice condenser reactor. It has uh, it, these huge tubs of ice that is, chemically uh, uh, they, you know, caustic or something like that, and they want you to they pour this over you as an initiation right. It's a secret thing that, you know, it's not official or anything like that. And uh, Sam and Ofri had these T-shirts that described being, you know, the, the uh, reactor from the underworld or something. I don't remember. But they, they have this behavior, uh, this theory that all the workers there have to believe that radiation is good for you. And the people that don't work there, that, that have worked there and quit, they said, and I didn't like that place. There was a woman named Donna Bosch. 
She was the Hanford Sites Environmental and Nuclear Safety Manager, is the third highest high-level employee to be removed after exposing Hanford's growing danger. Hanford in Washington was built as part of the Manhattan Project, and it's the most polluted nuclear waste site in the entire United States. So there were two other people that were fired before that. This is a February article that it's still leaking. In other words, it's not fixed yet. And this has been going on, and they've been aware of it for quite a few years. Yeah, it it doesn't matter if you're complaining because something is 10% over the federal limits and you think they ought to tighten the, the, the hatch down so that it doesn't leak above the limits, or if you're complaining because it's 100 times over the limit. It, they have an attitude of don't complain, just do your job. And when people don't do that, they get fired. And that can happen from, you know, other employees making it impossible for them to do their work properly, and then they get fired for not doing their work properly. When people are working together in a tight situation, it's pretty easy to, you know, make sure someone doesn't have the tools they need when they need them and things like that. So then they become known as a, a goof-off or whatever. I mean, apparently there were six leaking storage tanks producing 1,600 times higher than normal radiation readings. That's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. The, the, a number like that, 1,600 times normal radiation readings, is, then you, to get a, a full sense, you really need to know, well, how, how much is that? Is that 1,600 times at a pinpoint, pinhole leak that is, you know, only leaking a couple of gallons a day, and it, or is that 1,600 times, and it's leaking at that rate, a, a thousand gallons a day? I mean, it's not enough numbers to know exactly what was leaking because, at the point source, it's, of course, it's going to be very, very strong, and then they dilute it. Whether or not that's legal or above regulations or sensible or right is, they're all separate issues. Well. Here's what another article says, just to answer your question about that. It says, this is from RT.com, it says there were 177 tanks holding up to 56 million gallons of waste, 149 of which are single shell. Six of those tanks were discovered in February to be leaking at a rate of about 1,000 gallons annually. Yeah, so it would presume that that's 1,000 gallons at 16,000 times the uh, permissible rate which means that it's enough to poison 1.6 million gallons of water, approximately, to the permissible rate. So if they then dilute it in 2 million or 4 million gallons of water, they can say, ah, it's less than the legal rate, and then they feel like they've solved the problem. And that's the whole problem with the nuclear industry. They, they just don't mind a little bit of leak here, a little bit of leak there, then they tell you, well, those are short-lived isotopes. They won't be around long. Or they say, those are long-lived isotopes, which means their specific activity is very low. Because the longer the isotope's half-life is, the less likely it is to, to decay in the next you know, minute. And let's talk about half-life while you're mentioning it. Clear the air about what the half-life of radiation is. Oh, there's no half-life for radiation. It varies with each isotope. And then within... Each isotope, the individual uh, atom that is going to decay, can decay at any random time in the future. It may not decay at all, even though it's a, a, a type that normally decays very quickly. It may take essentially forever. 
So there's no, it's all very random. So when you talk about a half-life, that's if you have a, a given quantity of a substance, of a pure isotope, then in one half-life, half of that uh, substance will have decayed on average. But it's all statistical. And, and every, uh, every fission product and, and uranium and, and plutonium, they all have different half-lives and their different isotopes have different half-lives. So plutonium-238 has a different half-life from plutonium-239 and so forth. But a half-life could be thousands of years, right? Or just minutes or seconds. And the energy that is uh, ejected, the, 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 the energy of the decay particle varies as well. There's an average one for each uh, isotope, but there's no guarantee that any particular decay is going to be average. Would you live in Washington State for any reason at this point, knowing what you know about Hanford? I've visited Seattle once, uh, once or twice. It's a very lovely city. Yes, of course it is. But I'm talking about Hanford. I don't know where Hanford is. I guess it's Spokane, Washington, right? 70 miles east or something like that. Right. I don't think I'd want to. I, it would worry me night and day, but that's probably... And you know, back to the show. There's other worries here. Uh, I believe Marin County, California, is the breast cancer capital of the world, for instance. And California? Marin County, to be exact, which is a very bucolic area. And this was something I heard maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and maybe now it's not true. Maybe it's some other... But a lot of that... Uh, East Bay area is quite polluted. And, of course, the Los Angeles area is polluted, and we have several nuclear reactors in the Bay here in San Diego because we've got military reactors. And I'm sure they all leak, too, directly into the ocean and into the air. We could have as many as a dozen or more reactors in our Bay at any one time between the submarines and the carriers. So uh, is Hanford any worse than here? Maybe better. (laughs) Who knows? What do you think about Fukushima, and is Fukushima still active and burning? Uh, it's certainly still oozing. I don't know that they, you would call it burning. Uh, it's still melting down. The cores of the reactors of the three that melted down are still just sitting there. Uh, they call it the cold shutdown, but that only means that they think that it's below 212 degrees Fahrenheit or the boiling point of water. That doesn't mean it's still not quite thermally hot and radioactively hot. And any water that's poured over it, you sure wouldn't want to drink when that water just pours out into the ocean at the rate of 400 gallons a day, I think it is. I think it was 440 million or something like that. tons a day, something like that. Uh, but again, that number alone doesn't tell you. You need to know how much radiation is in that water and how would we even know isn't it an x factor they won't tell us that's for sure they they keep suggesting that it's this amount or that amount uh sometimes they'll tell you how many becquerels it is which is the decays per second but that doesn't tell you everything you need to know because unless you know what isotopes you don't know how long that decay rate is going to go on for like for example if it's decays per second of plutonium-239, that's going to go on for 25,000 years before it's half that decay rate. But if it's the decay rate of some of the uh, fission products, it might only last a few days before the decay rate has dropped to an inconsequential value.
How is it possible to have a nuclear power plant by the ocean knowing that if there's a tsunami or any kind of major problem or any type of volcanic eruption from the ocean floor, that it's a disaster waiting to happen? How is it possible that the companies actually put nuclear power plants right at the ocean side? Well, you need a lot of water to cool the reactor, and so they're using the ocean water as a coolant. And they also call it the ultimate heat sink, which means that if they need to just open up the valves and pour water through it, there's plenty of water available now. Salt water does ruin our nuclear reactor. That's what happened at Fukushima, and they were apparently hesitant to put salt water on it when they had the chance because they didn't want to ruin their reactors, which are quite ruined anyway. Um, but uh, it costs a lot of money to raise water. So for a nuclear reactor to have to be built high above the water would mean that they'd have to pump that water up every day at the rate of millions and millions of gallons an hour to, uh, uh, to cool the reactor. So they, they build them close to the water, and they make a judgment call as to whether or not it's above the most likely tsunami to happen within this probabilistic risk assessment value that they've calculated for how likely a tsunami is of X height, it's preposterous. The whole thing is a crapshoot. That's what bothers me. There's no precision in the setting it up, building it, securing it, or anything. It's just like throwing the dice. It's absolutely like throwing it. It's like Russian roulette. We always put a bullet in the chamber of a gun and spin it Spin it and put it to your head. That's what we're all doing. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's funny how sometimes you don't take action until people have died. I remember visiting my mother in an Alzheimer's facility in Studio City. And my cousins, Carol and Dan, were there. And I had this little tape recorder with me. My dad had passed on five years before. And I started to interview my cousins, Carol and Dan, about my parents because they were very close to them and they knew them for many years even before they were married. I want you to know that I got the funniest, most adorable stories about my mom and dad that I would have never heard otherwise. I kid you not. I found out that my dad, Buddy Greenhouse, used to invite people to massive parties, bring everybody together, and then they'd all get to the party and they'd go, where's Buddy? And he was not there. In other words, he would just put the whole thing together, get everybody to come, and sometimes he would not show up. Now, you may not think that's funny. You may think that's rude and all that, but I thought that was hysterical when I first heard about it. It's just not something that I would think that my dad was capable of, but apparently he was. Many of you listening to the show are going to wait until your parents and your sisters and brothers and cousins pass on before you ever capture the wonderful stories and legacy of your family. I'm making a very special service available to those of you that would like me to interview your family and capture the wonderful stories that are the gift of your family legacy. It's a really special service. It's very confidential and private and can be done in either audio or video. Don't miss the occasion to capture the living legacy of your family and the great treasures that are sitting there. I'm a miner. I know how to get to those treasures. Call me at its rainmaking time at 626-398-8652. Thank you. And back to the show. I'm sure plenty of people feel this way. I think that there should be 
new laws that state that nuclear power plants cannot be just assembled anywhere, that the people of the community in which they want to place it have to give a majority vote of okay. In other words, I'm not for it anyway. But what I'm saying is, you know how the cell towers just keep coming up and people are paid off to have cell towers on their houses, on their buildings, on their businesses, and the cell companies just pay them off, right? And shut people up. We'll give you 10 grand a month. Let us put a cell tower on your commercial building. Boom. Okay. They like especially to put them near schools. Yeah. There should be a law that the nuclear industry cannot pay off anybody to accept nuclear power plants. It should be the people saying yes or no, not the companies. Well, but in in a lot of ways, it's worse than that because the companies are not only sending out fancy, colorful brochures to all the schools and all the households in the local area, but they're actually getting money to build schools and roads from the company. So, for example, uh, one of the reactors in Connecticut that closed down, the local city that was getting uh, tax revenue from that reactor lost something like 70% of its tax revenue overnight. I'm sure San Clemente lost quite a tax bite when San Onofre shut down. The reactor companies have lots of ways to entice. It's not just directly uh, paying people off. It's cities as well. mitigation systems, and they build schools and roads and fire departments and even escape routes. They'll build anything that they need to to get that reactor into the community. Got it. Profitable business. And they and and then the, the worst part is that they build it with the ratepayers' money. So you end up paying to have propaganda fed to you. Now, you did an animation program, an educational animated program on this subject, correct? I, I think I've done several on radiation issues, yeah. And... You have been keeping tabs on how many new plants are built or added to your existing equation. What do you think it would take to update it? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to gather the information. And when I did it uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I got a lot of help from uh, NEARS and the people that are now beyond nuclear and uh, did a lot of research myself. So it it can be done, but the, the incentive to do the original one was that somebody needed it for a, a movie. They just wanted to be able to run through it real quickly. The term poison fire is an Indian name for uranium rivulets in the earth, the yellow soil that apparently nothing grows in. Do you feel that you're living in the safest place now that San Onofre was shut down? We still have something like 4 million pounds of spent fuel sitting on site. So that makes it a lot less safe But than it would be if we didn't have that fuel there because you can have just as bad an accident as with a reactor. The advantage is that you're much less likely to have an accident, but it is by no means impossible. Well, since people are waiting for the big earthquake here in California what do you suggest doing with 4 million pounds of spent fuel? And explain to the public what spent fuel means. Spent fuel, it's an interesting term that the nuclear industry uses. And what it really means is it's used reactor cores. In other words, the assemblies that are inside of the uh, pill-shaped reactor pressure vessel contain fuel rods, and the rods contain fuel pellets and the pellets are what are radioactive. So 
So the pellets inside the rods, inside the assemblies, have to get removed every year and a half or two years. And uh, after that, they're highly radioactive. Before they went into the reactor, you could handle them with you know, a pair of gloves because they just had some alpha-emitting uh, radiate, radioactive materials. They were not terribly radioactive. They were not much more radioactive than depleted uranium is, which is no picnic and should not have been used in war. But compared to spent fuel, it's about a million times less radioactive. So the process of generating electricity generates as a byproduct spent fuel. And that is the most dangerous stuff on Earth. And we don't know where to put it. They were going to put it in Yucca Mountain, but for technical reasons, that was not very likely. And for political reasons, they were able to stop it. Uh, it was not a good idea anyway. Uh, there's no alternative on site, so uh, you know, on the horizon. So the spent fuel is being left at the nuclear power plant sites where it's being generated. And uh, when you're generating millions of dollars in revenue, it's pretty easy to hide this pile of waste you're creating. But here at San Onofre, we've got 4 million pounds of waste and nothing's being generated. And so this is a problem that Southern California Edison would like to just walk away from. I would like to take a moment to honor the late Joseph Longo for creating a plasma converter that would take our most vile and toxic trash, including what we're talking about, and turn it into clean energy. He had signed a deal with an agency of the United States and was dead shortly afterward. He had a company called StarTech and had a very, very riveting piece of technology that could be used to do what it is that needs to be done with nuclear reactors and spent fuel. I'm just sorry he's not with us anymore. So to Joseph Longo in the heaven worlds, we're sorry we missed you and that StarTech was not integrated into all of society. There's a good chance that although some of there's been a variety of schemes for reducing the radioactivity of nuclear waste, Unfortunately, most of them require more energy to put in, be put in than comes out from the process, so it becomes very expensive. And none of them, to the best of my knowledge, are going to be 100% successful. And usually what they leave is the worst of the worst, the ones that are the most difficult to break down in some way, shape, or form. So I, if, if his method worked... Or, his method was incredible. Incredible. It would convert it to a usable utility, destroy it, make it inert at a molecular level. I interviewed him some years ago and talked to him many times on the phone afterward. It's a real great loss that we lost him and his incredible, incredible adventure. Well, and until a technology like that has been proven, they're being very irresponsible to create any of this waste. Yeah. I, actually, this technology was proven. It wasn't an issue of does it work. It was an issue of... Who doesn't want it? There's money in waste for some reason. I don't understand it. It's not my area of expertise, but... Well, yeah, there's, there's plutonium-239 and there's un, unburned uranium-235. That's usually what people think of as the money in nuclear waste. Talk a little bit about where you think it's all going to go in the United States. Let's just talk about here for right now. Where do you think the nuclear industry is going to go? Recently, Westinghouse backed out of making small modular reactors. And it was a pretty surprise move. 
everyone thought they were, I think, the number one company working on the idea. And they've apparently completely backed out. And I think that's what's going to happen is the, the finances are so bad for nuclear power that one by one, everybody's going to drop out of it, even Bill Gates. And if they don't solve the nuclear waste problem one way or another, the courts have decided that that's a significant issue that the NRC needs to work on. The NRC has been dragging their feet, but sooner or later, I think, there's going to be some ultimatums that say, you know, we need a solution, not just an interim solution or a temporary solution, but a permanent solution, and what is it? And scientifically, I don't think they can come up with one. So I don't see how the industry can keep going as long as people get smarter and smarter about what's going on and don't let them pull the wool over over our eyes. Well, I want to thank you for all of these years that you've not given up and you've stayed on point to do what you can to protect the American people and people outside the United States as well. And by you and your wife spending time going to meetings, writing, communicating, being of service, just want to thank you for the great work you've done. Well, a civic duty is a, a, an important thing that we all should be doing. And it, it can be very rewarding, but thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Ace Hoffman at acehoffman.org. He is the author of The Code Killers, Why DNA and Ionizing Radiation Are a Dangerous Mix. You can pick that up for a free download on his site and also read several of his other articles and watch his videos. Ace, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. We really appreciate you. Thank you. It's rainmaking time.